If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Let's start at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will bear my, be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven um, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of um, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Um, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be um, afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father's house in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites." Is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, um, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadomites, the Hittites, the Perzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. We're going to continue to talk about the importance of, of marriage this morning. I think because of the high divorce rate today and, and um, so many couples choosing to, to just live together rather than get married, I think it's vital that we talk about this and we protect the institution of, of marriage. There's a lot of pressures in our world on marriage right now. Um, from our culture, we see that all the time, um, from Hollywood, but even our, our government really hasn't been much, much help in, in how they redefine what marriage is and, and who it's between. And as we saw last time in Genesis 2 and other places, marriage is God's idea. It was God's idea right from the beginning. It's not our idea, and so we have to be careful about putting our own stuff on it. Marriage is God's idea. And so what was his intent with marriage? 
And uh, we started looking at that last time. But before we go any further, we really need to, uh, I, I think, talk about the major difference between marriage as Christians see it and, and marriage as our world around us sees it. For our world, they often see marriage as more of a contract um, or an agreement. I think that's why prenuptials are, are uh, becoming more and more popular today. Basically, a prenuptial is an official agreement that two people make before they marry that if they ever get a divorce, this is how everything is split, property, money, whatever. But when you look at that and, and look at that arrangement, it, it sounds more like a, a business deal than an actual marriage. Before a couple even says, I do, they're already opening the back door crack in case this doesn't work out, well, this is what you gotta do. Let me describe what I mean when I talk about a Christian marriage and, and uh, what that's like. Well, b- even before that, let me give you this picture. I think in many ways uh, um, a, world, uh, a marriage that we see out in the world is like uh, um, vinegar and oil. Have you ever done that for a salad? Vinegar and oil. You, you put it in that container and you start shaking it and it looks pretty mixed at first, right? But if you set that down on, on, on the table and just let it rest for a while, what eventually happens? It separates, right? I think that's, that's not a bad idea of what a lot of worldly marriages are, are like. Um, they, they never really achieve that oneness that we're called to, the kind of oneness that Christians can. And, and really, a Christian marriage, they can go deeper than, than the world around us. I think if we were going to say that, you know, um, uh, vinegar and oil is um, a description of, of a, a, a marriage out in the world, I, I think you could say that for Christians, it's more like mashed potatoes. What do you do with mashed potatoes? First, you boil them, right? Skin them alive? <laughs> I got to be careful here. <laughs> and then you mash them together until they're one, right? I mean, they, they truly achieve a oneness. Oneness that they, they didn't have um, before. See, Christian's marriage is, is a lot deeper. And I think if you talk to uh, um, a Christian, eventually you get around to talking about the idea of covenant. And that's really what we're going to focus on um, the most um, this morning. In a marriage covenant, the two eventually, or actually, they, they become one. There's a oneness achieved um, that, that I don't think we always totally understand because the pattern for our, our covenant is after God's own covenant with us. Which means that the longer a, a, a couple stays together in, in a marriage, the more they become one, the more they become united. A oneness that you're not going to be able to achieve um, when you bail on your relationship. I think you could say that the end product of, of a Christian marriage is no longer I or me, but it's us and we. Even when it comes to uh, bank accounts, I love it when uh, a couple will tell me, yeah, we, we got married, but our, our bank accounts are separate. No, that's not how it works. Oneness. It's no longer I or me, but now it's us or we. Not, not that you can't have your own bank account, 
Um, I'm, I'm not talking about that, but overall, you've got to begin to work together. You've got to begin to see yourself together. And that can only be achieved um, when, when you understand what, what that oneness is all about. In a minute, we're going to look at what a marriage covenant is, but before we do this, let me talk about what a covenant is in general. And as I was preparing my, my message this past week, I came across this story, and I think it kind of illustrates well um, what a covenant is all about. When Stanley and Livingston were exploring Africa, they came in contact with a, a powerful equatorial uh, uh, tribe. Apparently, this tribe was very warlike, and, and they loved to fight. They loved to fight everybody. Well, during a, a time when Stanley and Livingston, they were, they were separated from each other, they were both out exploring different parts of Africa, Stanley started having trouble with this tribe. And since Stanley was sickly, and he did not have very men who could protect him, he was really in no position to fight back against this, this warring tribe. One day, one of his interpreters asked him, why don't you make a covenant with uh, the chief of, of that tribe so that this, this raiding, this fighting will come to an end? And eventually, Stanley took his interpreter's advice and he went to the chief and he made a covenant. After days of negotiations where the stipulations of the covenant, they were all laid out, there was a traditional exchange of gifts. Now, since Stanley was far away from home, he really didn't have very much that he could give the, the, the old chief, except for a goat that he had. And the reason he had that goat was because his stomach was so poor, it was the only thing that he was surviving on was goat, goat's milk. And so the thought of giving up his most prized possession, because that's what the chief wanted, it, it was hard for him, but eventually he had to, if, if there was going to be peace. So he gave the chief his, his new goat, and, and the chief gave him his 12-foot spear. At first, Stanley thought the old chief had pulled one over on him, giving him that spear, but in time, Stanley found that wherever he went in Africa with that spear, everybody bowed down and submitted to him. So it really was quite the gift. In addition to this, a blood covenant was established. The chief and Stanley, they both picked one of their servants, and, and those men cut their wrists, and they, they, they touched it with each other, and they became blood brothers. And they poured some of that blood in, into a goblet, and they put some uh, wine in there, and, and they both drank from it. And, and that sealed that the chief and, and Livingston were, were now one. They, they, were, they had entered into a covenant with each other. They were blood brothers. After the ceremony was over, the tribal priest came over. He began to shout all kinds of curses against, on, on Stanley if ever he should break the covenant that he just made. Stanley was also surprised to learn that now he and the chief had made, now that they've made a covenant together, that everything the chief had was now his, and everything he had now belonged to the chief. The chief had many wives, many concubines, many children. If Stanley wanted, he could have taken any of those, those women, but thankfully he didn't, and, and vice versa. But the chief had no idea what Stanley all had in, in, in the United States. But despite this fact that there really wasn't a fair exchange, um, the chief had all kinds of things Stanley really didn't have any. Um, still, the chief was willing to make a covenant with Stanley. And I think you could say that it truly was a covenant of grace. 
They weren't on equal terms. Stanley had very little that he could even offer. But the chief made this covenant all the same. That's exactly what we see happening in our our story this morning. This kind of grace when it comes to God's covenant. You know, I find that this is one of those stories that can easily confuse us. In this chapter in Genesis, we find God coming to Abraham and telling him that he's going to make a covenant with him. Covenant that would be not only for him, but all his descendants too. We're told Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That his descendants would be like the sands of the seashore. When Abraham accepted God's covenant offer, we're told that he gave himself to to God wholeheartedly. Didn't hold back. And after God laid out the stipulations of the covenant, God commanded Abraham to do something curious. God had Abraham take and kill a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He had Abram put all the big pieces of animals, chop them in half, one on each side of the path. The smaller animals, obviously you couldn't do that. And so he just set them on the side of the path. It was a custom in Abraham, Abraham's time that when two people made a covenant together, they would make these covenant promises um, to each other, you know, that they promised to withhold the the covenant that they were making. And then afterwards, both parties would walk through uh, an an animal that they chopped in half. And, And what that signified was, may this happen to me if ever I break my covenant with you. But notice something curious here. Abraham never goes through the halves of animals. It's only God symbolizes that smoking fire pot that went through those halves. And so what do we see going on there? And I think it's obvious. God knew that Abram could never keep his end of the bargain. And we know that. We just have to look at Israel's history. But God would be faithful. And so God is the one who passed through those smoke, the, 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 the pieces of animals. And by doing that, he was saying, may this happen to me. May I be like just one of these animals here if ever I go back on my covenant promise to you, if I'm not faithful. Think about that. What an incredible promise God is making to us. May this happen to me if ever I go back on my promise to you. We call this a blood covenant, don't we? And one of the the benefits of being in a covenant with God is that everything that God has is now at Abram's disposal. You ever think of that? Just like Livingston and the chief, everything that the chief owned was now at Livingston's, uh, that he could use and, and vice versa. It's the same with us and God. God begins to confide in Abram. Think of God telling Abraham his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. Why would he do that? Because he had entered into that covenant relationship with him. He also allowed Abraham to intercede on behalf of of the people. All God's power and might was at the disposal of Abraham later and, and, and the trouble that they encountered. Over and over and over again, God was faithful to his promise. He was the protector and provider of his people. And while eventually 
people would turn away once again. Still, God kept his hand on Israel and he kept a remnant for himself. God was faithful. Thankfully, though, in the fullness of time, even though we couldn't keep our end of the deal, eventually one came who could, who was our representative, who was both God, 100% God, and 100% man. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And because of his righteousness, we've been made righteous. We've been made clean. He stood in our place. And because of that, we now have the gift of eternal life. Our sins are taken away. We've been made whiter than snow. All that happened in the fullness of time when God established his final covenant through his son Jesus. As Jesus spilt his blood, that covenant was sealed. The wrath of God was appeased. Jesus stood in our place. He lived a sin- sinless life and accomplished that something we never could. And while the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they covered sins temporarily, it postponed God's hand of wrath upon his people. Yet it didn't take away their sin. It, it, it put it off. It kept putting it off until one would come who could deal with their sin, who could take it away. And that was Jesus. And what he accomplished on the cross, rising again three days later on, on Good Friday. What Jesus did for us, it wasn't just a symbolic thing, but he cleansed us in the deepest parts of our heart and soul. That's why Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 26, this is at the Last Supper, after he gave thanks for the bread and the wine, listen to what he says, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the blood of the covenant. And just like Stanley before the chieftain, we bring nothing to this covenant, do we? We offer nothing. It's God's gift of grace to us that we receive through faith. This is the model that our marriages are patterned after. When when a couple says, I do, you're actually making a covenant agreement with each other. That's why marriage is nothing that we should rush into. That's why pastors will go through premarital counseling. It's not something we should rush into very quickly. It's not a, let's go to Hollywood, let's go to Vegas and get married. We'll have Elvis do it. You know, spur of the moment. That's not how it works. It's a serious relationship that we enter into and we, we can't do that lightly. In the Old Testament, when you broke God's covenant, it could cost you your life. Can you imagine if that was a penalty for breaking the covenant of marriage? I think less people would be willing to throw in the towel and they'd be willing to work at it. But we live in a broken world, I understand that, and there's grace, praise the Lord for that. And we get a second chance But still, this is God's ideal. This is what he's calling us to. 
And we've got to take it as serious as, as he does. That's why Paul says that marriage, a marriage covenant is patterned after God's covenant with us. Our, our, our marriages should be a, u- a unique display to our world. That God is among us. That God's love is what drives us. Our lives should be completely different than the world around us. Our marriages should point as a beacon to him and his love for us. We need to be mindful of that. That's why we need to work at our marriages. Don't give up on them, but work at them. And and, and through your marriage, let it be a light, a beacon um, to the world around us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor sent to prison in Hitler's Germany in um, 1943, later martyred for his faith. And while he was in, in, in his cell, he wrote this sermon um, for a marriage that he wanted to perform. He never got to do it. But in that sermon, this is, this is what he said. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, it's the marriage that sustains your love. In other words, your commitment sustains a marriage whether feelings are present or not. Marriage is not ultimately about feelings. It's about a choice. I know a man in my last congregation that was a real uh, inspiration to me. That's all I can say. One of the things that really impressed me uh, uh, about him was his commitment to his marriage. He was faithful to the end. When his wife was pregnant with uh, their second child, she had complications that left her weak. Soon after, she had a number of strokes that left her even weaker. If that wasn't enough to bear when she was in her 50s, she came down with leukemia. She lost her ability to walk. She lost her ability really to care for herself. What made it even worse was she was depressed because she couldn't do much, and so she was very angry. And she took her anger out on her husband every chance she could. And yet, he didn't reply in anger. He didn't reply in wrath. I remember one time, um, him and I, we went fishing. And I gave him an opportunity to talk about his marriage. I knew how frustrated he was at times. I mean, it wasn't easy. And he started to open up to me a little bit. And... uh, as I asked him about it, and, and do you know as he opened up, he never complained once? Not once. I was giving him a, an opportunity to, to vent, and, and he just started telling me all the things that he was thankful for. Thankful for his wife, thankful that they still loved each other, especially after all the years. He was thankful that he had the ability to care for his wife thankful that God gave him the strength to do it. Thankful, 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 thankful. I was blown away by it. His commitment to his wife, to the marriage. And whenever I saw them together, whenever I thought about them, it was like a spotlight pointing upwards to our Father's love for us. Covenant of grace. Faithful to the end. Well, sometimes it takes a couple, it, it, it takes a couple, a couple tries to get things right. Still, this is the love that Christ is calling us to this morning. And it's my prayer, as I hope it's your prayer, that our lives and marriages will reflect the same love and commitment 
And it might be a window through which our world will be able to glimpse the love of God in our own lives. Your relationship with your spouse really does bear witness to God's covenant of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word, Lord, and we just thank you for your love, your commitment to us. Father, we hear your call, and it's hard sometimes, Lord. We live in a broken world, and Lord, we experience that brokenness even in our marriages. And Lord, some have, have um, gone the route of getting a divorce, and we just pray, Lord, that you will bless them, that you will heal them from that pain so that they might be able to move on. And, and for those, Lord, who are struggling in their marriages right now, Father, we just pray that you give them much grace and patience and love. And Father, we thank you for those marriages in our, our congregation, Lord, where their focus is on you. Lord, we just have to look at them and, and, and Lord, we're reminded of your love. And we just pray, Lord, that you might make them strong, that the devil will not be able to get a foothold in any way into those relationships. And Father, we just thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the love that you demonstrated at Calvary and over the grave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.